The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Dan Hind to talk about the need to reform Britain's unwritten constitution, what a project to democratise British society might look like, and even whether that might be desirable in the era of so-called populism. Sorry to any listeners who might have been hoping for a Brexit special in light of recent events in Westminster. Um, I had thought about it, but uh, two recent episodes with James Butler and Richard Seymour were on Brexit, um, which I do recommend checking out if you haven't already. And um, I'm sure the show will return to Brexit again and, and possibly will continue to return for the next 10 years or so. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes, ACAS and all other good podcast applications. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. Um, you can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Dan Hind is an independent publisher and a fellow at the Democracy Collaborative's Next System project. His books include The Return of the Public, Democracy, Power and the Case for Media Reform and The Magic Kingdom, Property, Monarchy and the Maximum Republic. Dan also co-hosts the Excellent Media Democracy podcast with Tom Mills, which I strongly recommend checking out if you haven't already. Our conversation was prompted by an essay Dan wrote for the Next System Project entitled The Constitutional Turn, Liberty in the Cooperative State and you can find a link to the essay in the description of today's show. I began the interview by asking Dan why it is that the British left has traditionally been quite inattentive to questions of constitutional reform and why it is that we need to develop what he calls a constitutional imagination. I think part of this is to do with a a long-standing tradition in the in the more radical sections of the left of being being as it were reluctant to prepare recipes for future cooks i think is a phrase that marx came up with and the idea of making plans for a future state is seen as as being um utopian as being uh, in some way a distraction from the really hard work of contemporary critique and mobilization and i think in in candor i think this is a uh, this is a mistake. The The truth of the matter is that I think that if we're to be serious about uh, pursuing a, a left agenda, we, we need to um, think much more carefully and much more steadily about how we want to structure the state. I mean, the other the other factor that, that obviously is at play here is, is the anarchist tradition, uh, which is in some senses um, part of the Marxist tradition, in that, that there is this idea that the state itself is something that we need to transcend. There will be a post-revolutionary moment where we won't just just 
uh, remove the institutions of, of liberal or bourgeois democracy, but will also um, dissolve the um, the institutions of the working class, and we'll end up with a uh, with a, uh, a withering away of the state. And I think that this is this is an unhelpful habit of mind, and I think it leads to some reflect, reflexes on the left that we need to start to get beyond. Which, in particular, we, it leads us to to focus um, relentlessly on what we don't want. Uh, to focus relentlessly on on the um, the ills and the problems of contemporary reality, and not focus sufficiently on what we do want, and how we practically bring what we do want into existence, both in the immediate term and in the medium term. Um, and it seems clear to me that we do want a democratic state. Uh, and if we want a democratic state, then we have to think much more carefully about what that actually means. Um, and we have to start thinking much more about the constellation of, if you like, of values um, that come together uh, in a in a constitution that underpins and gives shape to a uh, a fully or as full as possible a democratic state. Um, so that's a, I mean, that's a very sort of gestural answer. But as I say, there are there are there are deep traditions on the left which. I I don't want to kind of spend a lot of time criticising because I think it's very easy to sort of, um, again, one of the besetting problems of the left, I think, is constantly sort of picking over our shortcomings. Um, but we are at a moment where there is less need for a uh, for a uh, sort of master critique, uh, a sort of perfect uh, intellectually watertight critique of reality. There's much less need for that, it seems to me. Um, than for a um, a series of, ex- of practical experiments in new new kinds of social organisation, new kinds of governance, um, and for a more um, abstract dis- discussion, really about what a future state needs to look like, and that is not something I think that is uh, reflexively easy for the left, but is but is vitally important. I mean, hear, hearing you say that the left should, you know, be spending less time on on critique and 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 more time on um, on propositional questions. It, I mean, it, it brings to mind Michael Albert and and his work on on participatory economics, which which he developed with um, with Robin Harnell. And you know, I, I mean, it, it does strike me in 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 the case of his work that it it seems to have become. Uh, it's not really in, in articulation with current political questions, it seems to me. It just seems to be a, a fairly abstract model and questions of strategy and how to achieve it don't really seem to be there. And I suppose it, it's that kind of thing that, that worries me slightly about, about um, taking a more propositional orientation sometimes. Yeah, so I think you know, it's, it's, it's worthwhile distinguishing between thought experiments, which again, can be a very useful way of criticising the present, um, uh, as it were, sort of looking f- far forward to, an, you know, an ideal type of a of a, a different kind of society. Um, but I think there's a, there's, a, there's a vital space in the middle, if you think of, like, if you think of critique of contemporary reality and then you think of a future state uh, the post-capitalist state for example as being sort of the long perhaps that's the long-term um objective there's this crucial middle point which is like well how do you transition from from here to there and there it seems to me vital that we we take seriously the existing institutions of the state and we take seriously the ways in which uh, the capitalist economy is a is a is a creature of representative democracy. Um, we start to 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 draw out the ways in which representative democracy in its current form actually is is uh, is the um, 
uh, is, as it were, the, the parent of capitalist society. And to think about ways in which we need to supplement the institutions of representative democracy um, in various ways um, in order to bring in that, as it were, that, that, that democratic dimension, which itself will give us the power to begin to develop post-capitalist futures, um, which will be suppressed and frustrated um, if we if we seek to rely on representation alone, I think that that surely is the lesson of um, of the last two hundred years. The idea that we we win elections on a on a radical prospectus, and then we'll be able to institute some sort of uh, radical break with the with the existing institutions of the state is is a is a delusion. And so, yeah. So there is that, as I say, there's that middle space. We, we are where we are. Um, there is a place we'd like to get to, which is hugely arguable. Like, what exactly is the, the, end, the end point? I don't think we're in any position to make final judgments about that. But there is this question, which is pressing, as to how do we begin to formulate in, in legitimate, like, de- democratically derived ways, um, what, a, what a future looks like? How do we begin to co-own the future? That that is, and that is to some extent just a very practical matter, it, and it leads to a certain set of policy proposals, um, which seem to me to be to have constitutional significance. They change the way that the state functions. They change the way in which it's, as it were, illuminated. Uh, change the way the distribution of knowledge that surrounds it, but that do not require us to to sort of to all agree unanimously about some some post capitalist future. Um, there are things we can do now, I think, that we can build consensus around um, that, frankly, it, it, where, where you know, disagreement is useful. It's useful to know that some people who think of themselves as being on the left are not Democrats. They don't actually want democracy. Um, they want to be in charge. Um, and, you know, again, one of the interesting, one of the clarifying things about the current moment is realizing that a lot of, of people who think of themselves as left liberals um, are profoundly opposed to democracy. They hate it um, and want it, want it to stop. Um, and that's a really useful cleavage, which comes m- into much clearer focus if we start talking about the constitution explicitly. Um, how do we make how do we make the constitution more democratic? Well, some people don't want it to be more democratic. They they want it to function as a as a smoother technocracy. Um, and we need to we need to have a, a an honest argument with these people. I'll come back to the the question of, of the constitution, but um, just regarding democracy and, and and as you say that opposition to extending democracy beyond representational uh, forms that that you see in sort of uh, among centrist uh, liberals. So I would think that that both of us see it as kind of self evident that it would be good to extend democracy to into into the economy and and to expand it within the, in the political sphere as well beyond beyond the current forms that we have. Um, I, I suppose, you know, particularly in the current moment, there is a lot of pushback on that, you know, as, as, as you point to. And, you know, we can also see forms of mass political ac- action, which which do raise questions about the, the, the benefits of, of, uh, of extending democracy. I mean, I'm thinking about things like the, the Five Star Movement in Italy, which, you know, is very sort of um, has very kind of confused and contradictory politics. But, um, you know, it sort of indulges in, in conspiratorial thinking regarding uh, uh, the anti-vaccine movement and that kind of thing. Um, there's the Gilets Jaunes 
on, which, you know, I, I have plenty of sympathy for, but again, seems to be a, a mix of many different political tendencies and, um, it, you know, it's quite inchoate in its politics in some in some ways. And the belief that politics should be, to some extent, left to the experts is, is not one confined just to political elites, but but, but to a significant extent to, to, to ordinary people as well. And I, I, I wonder how you think, uh, how, you, how you would respond to that and, uh, yeah, why, why you think it is kind of self-evident that we should be pursuing greater democratisation? Well, yeah, there's a couple of questions there, isn't there? There's the, the question about popular fitness, like are, are people capable of um, becoming, as it were, their own ruling class? Are, are people capable of, of re- you know, the full extent of self-government? Um, and I think it's important when we think about that to understand the extent to which individual subjectivity and individual potentialities are formed within a given constitutional settlement. The fact is that most people do not have opportunities uh, to access an information field that isn't uh, wildly deceptive. Um, Most people don't have opportunities to spend uh, fairly long periods of time working with other people to develop develop a, a more refined understanding of some matter of public business. So the forms of public opinion um, that become visible, as you say, are are often extremely mixed. Um, there will be a huge variety of uh, themes of thought, if you like, um, in 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 popular attempts to break uh, the representative deadlock. Some of which will be um, conspiratorial in a bad way. I feel kind of compelled to say that um, uh, that some of them will be. Uh, anti-scientistic in a bad way. Um, again, I feel compelled to say that um, because uh, some of the things that we see as being uh, expressions of popular incapacities, it seems to me, are in fact perfectly reasonable assessments of, of reality. It's just the, the difficulty we have is distinguishing between, as it were, fantasy and reality, given our own uh, limited grasp on the issues. Um there are plenty of examples. I mean, to take the vaccine one, there are plenty of reasons why I think popular constituencies are right to be hugely suspicious about the medical consensus. There are plenty of things that that uh, the pharma- pharmacological and medical combine are doing under capitalism, which are really bad for us. There are plenty of things that um, uh, the, the scientific establishment is keeping quiet about, um, which they... Just to clarify, Dan... Uh, yeah. Just to clarify, Dan, you're, you're, you're not telling PTO listeners that they shouldn't vaccinate their children against measles. Is that, no, no, I'm not. But, what I'm, <laughs> but, but, but crucially, what I am saying is that there is a uh, there is a uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, uncertainty in, the, as it were, the, the general field of publicly available descriptions about contemporary reality. And part of creating um, a democratic political system is changing the way in which uh, information is generated and assessed and shared. And until we've until we've changed that, until we've changed the way in which we um, generate a shared account of the world in such a way that we can we basically can can fight back effectively against organised deception by um, both political and economic elites. Until we've done that, I think all questions about popular competence. As it were, pop, you know, cognitive com- competence in, po- in in the in the majority. All these questions are moot. We just don't. We don't. 
We really don't know. All the evidence we have, frankly, is that the public is pretty good at figuring out what's going on. And and actually, a lot of the evidence suggests that elites are pretty good at then caricaturing um, and misunderstanding uh, what the ma- what, what mass constituencies are, t- are telling them. Uh, you know, Tom and I did a, a program on conspiracy theory, and uh, one of the articles we talked about was was um, a survey which uh, uh, Americans would t- had been asked had been asked to take over many in m- many um, uh, research projects, and they were asked, you know, do you believe that you know whatever whatever however people vote, the important decisions will always be made by a few people, right? Now, that's actually just a description of representative democracy. Um, and yet it's taken as evidence of, of um, belief in conspiracy theories. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so there's, I mean, that's a, that's a very long, long way around. I mean, I, I've seen very little convincing evidence that um, majorities are, as it were, um, un, un, incapable of understanding uh, quite complex issues. There's plenty of evidence that they don't have much opportunity uh, to refine their understanding. And again, you know, part of a constitutional imagination is about figuring out how you improve uh, those opportunities and give material resources uh, to the majority so that they can improve their understanding. Um, on the issue, just very quickly, on the issue of like, you know, there's a lot of popular resistance to the idea that that they should be actively involved in government, that people should, uh, you know, they, you hear that, don't you? You know, that, that the woman who famously said, oh, not another election. Why can't they just get on with it kind of thing? Uh, I, I'm afraid there I I go against like popular opinion to the extent that that holds. I think if you want to be free, if you want to be prosperous, to leave it in, in, in the hands of other people is is not possible. If you if you leave it in other people's hands, they'll just exploit you. That's that seems to me axiomatic. Um, so to the extent that uh, to the extent that we want to be free, then I'm afraid we have to go through the, the slightly difficult process of of engaging in forms of uh, mutual education, engaging in forms of political activism. And again, the, the crucial thing is to find ways of doing that which are materially sustainable, uh, ways that can fit in with the, uh, the rest of what life demands of us, um, given that we're not yet in some uh, post-scarcity utopia. I mean, I, I suppose a huge part of the difficulty in, in making the argument for greater democratisation is is that, you know, effectively what elites are, are able to do is to, you know, in, inculcate a, a significant degree of, of, of political ignorance regarding the population and, and then on that basis to say, look, you know, these people can't organise their lives because, you know, they, they believe in these conspiracies of one sort or another or, or, or that they're consumed by, by anger and that this shows their absence of, of, of a capacity for sort of cool reflection and, and all that kind of thing. And, and, then at sure. the, and then at the same time, you know, they succeed in making the political sphere so boring that it that it negates people's desire to actually want to even be involved in it. Well, right, and and so they make it so dull and and r- ridiculous that it, that they can then caricature anyone who takes an interest in it as being some sort of crank, um, you know, a, a sort of uh, yeah, being interested in politics in the current media environment means you watch Newsnight and. Basically, it's like you've got a really weird hobby. (laughs) It's like, why would you want to do that? You just watch sort of interchangeable elected shysters sort of talking about things in a massively deceptive way. Um, 
and mo- for the most part, when they can, talking about things which are a complete distraction from what any, as it were, rational public sphere would prioritize. So, yeah, they they hold a they hold a huge huge amount of uh, leeway, and it's important, I think, to grasp that they that's the point. They like that, right? They like the fact that as representatives, uh, they can work in partnership with media institutions to really frame the way in which politics. As a as a visible endeavor is is presented uh, and represented, um, and it is a vital role, it seems to me, for the democratic left to intervene in that collusion between media elites, uh, media owners, and holders of political office, and in and as it were, inter, in interpolate the public as observers and as actors in this process of representation. And that I think, once once we grasp that as a as an objective, then the practicalities of doing so become uh, it, be, it becomes much easier to imagine what that might look like in practice. How often do we do we have a chance to see ordinary people engage with one another and with expert opinion in order to develop and improve and refine their understanding? How often do we do we see uh, ordinary people? engage authoritatively with elites we see we when we see ordinary people engaging with elites we overwhelmingly see them asking questions right and it, i mean like if you think about it this is the it's a, it's a very straightforward reproduction of the idea that there are people who don't know in the audience and that there are people who do know on the panel um and the people on the panel are overwhelmingly millionaires right so this this production of of politics that we were presented on the media uh, through the media uh, is one which confirms a model of of the public as being incapable of doing anything either uh, doing anything other than either asking questions or throwing eggs. Right? Either you're a mob or you are a a, a deferential asker of questions. Really, is that those are sort of the roles, or, or sort of a, a passive consumer who who has has a range of options uh, which they can choose or dismiss. Sure, and 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 the normal thing to be is completely unconnected uh, from from politics in any in any sort of detailed way, but available for mobilisation by elites um, through, through you know when when that suits them. So. Uh, there will be attempts to to mobilise mass constituencies around elite projects, but for the most part, as I say, wanting to be in the audience at question time is uh, as a minority pursuit. Actually, watching um, political programmes is seen as as a fairly eccentric hobby, um, because which, which it is, right? And, and you can see why you can see why that's a uh, a reasonable <laughs> view to have of that, because it is presented as a um, as an arcane sort of game, the way the way in which we we we, we see ourselves as, as it were, ordinary citizens, we don't see ourselves as agents. We don't see ourselves as being able actually to interfere in elite claims about reality, even when those claims are ridiculous um, and obviously ridiculous. I mean, w- there there is a bit of talk around Brexit about the idea of a constitutional crisis. Right? The constitutional crisis, to my mind, really begins in earnest in two thousand and eight when the entire legitimation of um, capitalist society, the idea that we are all in markets, uh, that the rewards are distributed on the basis of market success, is completely exploded 
in plain sight by the fact that a handful of people in government just bail out the banks, right? It turns out that banks are part of the state, right? And we, in this country, we have a highly financialized society, highly financialized economy, um, where the Bank of England is the ultimate arbiter of who lives and dies, who survives and who, who fails in, in this sector of the economy. And it turns out market forces count for nothing. Absolutely nothing. This whole idea of, of our, our operating in a competitive um, market economy uh, that the, the, somehow the political director can't interfere in because of its sort of intricate nature and the, you know, the, the laws of supply and demand, which, as it were, are more important than, than, than um, the collective will of the political community. This is just for the birds, right? And, and so, again, to bring, bring it back to the kind of the specific issue of constitutional design, like how do we bring the central bank production of credit and therefore the production of money under effective democratic surveillance and control? Right? That's a key question. Um, similarly, this key question of like how do we bring the production and reproduction of public speech um, into the daylight of democratic deliberation? How do we make the, the forms of information on which we rely amenable to reality through the exercise of democratic power? Um, how is that reflected uh, in, in institutional design in the state? Um, and, and, and the final element, you know, why do why why do we have a um, an economy dominated by corporations? Well, because we have a state that looks for partners in the corporate sector. So, how do we redesign collective institutions in the economy um, so that and and redesign the state so that the natural affinity for the state is with cooperative enterprises, with enterprises which are um, responsive both to their workers uh, and to the communities in which they operate. So you, how do we move away from a corporate to a cooperative state? In other words, now these these are these are like practical questions, and they all imply, it seems to me, a, di- a different uh, relationship between the individual citizen and the political process. Um, but but crucially, yeah, I mean to go back to the to the point at the moment, um, we are we we have a system where this complete collapse of the organising legitimations of. Um, the neoliberal order, to, to use a sort of bit of jargon, um, the organising legitimations of that order collapse, and the response of the elite is to say, oh, well, it's the fault of the Labour government borrowing too much, and welfare claimants and immigrants. The response of the elites was overwhelmingly an exercise in like, gaslighting. And uh, that should not be possible in a democratic constitution. You shouldn't be able to uh, reconfigure reality uh, in order to suit your own elite projects, which were obviously to maintain massive inequality in the private and the public sphere. Before we go on to the, the more propositional side of, of your argument, I thought we could chat a little bit about the, the, the British and American constitutions as, as they are currently configured. So a very interesting thing you say, which is really contrary to popular wisdom, is that the British and American constitutions, um, and this is especially said of, of the British uh, constitution, um, frequently they're described as sort of as backward or, or anachronistic arrangements Whereas you suggest that, as you put it, they are rational and frighteningly up to date, which, yeah, as, as I say, it's a very unusual perspective to take on 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 particularly the British Constitution, which is which is viewed as backward and as kind of um, existing at a st- in a state of arrested development compared to Britain's European counterparts. 
Sure. Um, so, so what what do you mean when you say that the British American constitutions are, are up to date? So, I mean, this is I mean, this is a chance to talk quickly about the sort of liberal tradition of constitutional reform in Britain, which does see the constitution, British constitution, being backward and looks to constitutional reform in terms of a kind of renovation, a kind of bringing up to date, a kind of introduction of international best practice uh, into the structure of the state uh, through things like um, um, you know, an explicit Bill of Rights, perhaps through some perhaps proportional representation and so on. And I don't, and I don't have any particular quarrel with with any of that sort of renovating um, agenda. Uh, there are ways in which uh, we fall fall short, as it were, of liberal best best practice. Um, but the but the crucial point about the existing state order in 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 Britain is that through a combination of kind of contemporary improvisation and the, 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 the use of existing institutional forms, the British state until very recently has been extremely good at uh, managing in the, in the, as it were, the conditions of criminalized globalization, right? So Britain's business model has been as effect- effectively as a, um, a large-scale money launderer that has been able to act as a sort of uh, a conduit for capital flight from both the daylight economies of the rest of the world and also from the vast black markets. Um, it's been able to hoover up um, the proceeds of tax evasion and avoidance, uh, grand corruption and criminal commerce and feed them into a whole range of uh, offshore financial centres, which are themselves uh, relics or, or um, holdovers from from the imperial past. So actually, what you see is is a is a constitution which is you know has a mid pre medieval monarchy, a, a pre medieval um, commune in the city of London, um, a whole set of colonial r- relics, and they've been able to stitch together an extremely uh, like hyper modern business model, and it works extra has has worked extremely well for them. Through you know from really from the end of um, Britain's sort of formal imperial ambitions in the fifties uh, until you know until two thousand and eight for sure and there is you know there's plenty of life in the old dog yet I mean that Brexit is a massive disruption to this business model um, but but nevertheless uh, to think of Britain simply as being an outmoded um, state, a state that needs to be brought up to date, I think is to, is to mis- mischaracterize it. It's, um, it is a, in many ways a very modern state. And I mean, to finish the point, you know, part of the way in which it's hypermodern is that it, it mobilizes this idea that we're uh, a time-honored uh, um, ancestral constitution um, to create uh, an ambiance of stability, to create an ambiance of security, which is extremely attractive to thieves, Right. Thieves love property rights for themselves. Um, and if you've stolen a lot of money, um, the idea of bringing it to Britain, which has had the same constitution for a thousand years, it's got um, a long-standing um, governing um, dynasty in the, in the Windsors and so on. Some, this is kind of, this is appealing, right? So the, it, it's been able to, the British state has been able to align itself with, as it were, the global winners. It's been able to say to people who've won um, the battle to uh, privatise, to uh, to expropriate, to exploit, those winners are then brought to London for fine dining uh, and for cutting edge 
uh, advice on how to build intergenerational family um, financial structures. I suppose uh, an interesting contrast might be with uh, with the French state, which is obviously you know founded on a, a revolutionary moment and is a place where there's been tremendous resistance for decades to thorough implementation of neoliberalism. Um, and, and even now, Macron is seems to be once again uh, another French president who's 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 failing to to sort of ram through um, liberalisation of the French economy, and yet it's the French state which is pointed to as 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 modern. Yes, I mean that's that's true. The French live with the experience of you know these refoundational moments, you know, where the, the a new republican form is created. Um, someone like Mélenchon can talk about creating a new republican constitution in a way I think that makes sense to people. It's part it's part of a, a relatively recent historical experience that they they change the the form of the constitution. They they, they have done that in living memory. We are, in some senses, I think, mystified by um, by the antiquity of the Constitution. Um, the sense that if we start pulling at these threads, we won't know where it will all end. There is something to the idea that our our lack of a codified Constitution gives us flexibility. I I mean, I talk about about the social democratic left being limited to sort of redistribution in the way that it thinks about. Um, its sort of political ambitions. That's not entirely fair. Um, I was talking to um, someone the other day about the National Health Service and and, re- and really making the point that in some senses the creation of the National Health Service creates, albeit implicitly and in a way that's not codified, it creates a a right to to healthcare. It creates a universal right to healthcare as a uh, as a sort of as I say as a, a, an implicit element of our social settlement um the problem I mean, part of the problem and part of the reason why i think we were so vulnerable to uh, the neoliberal turn is that so much can be done to the british constitution um, by as it were um, executive fiat if you have control of the executive in britain um and you have control of parliament uh, as well but just leaving aside parliament for a moment if you have control of the executive you can do enormous amounts right so um when thatcher gets in she one of her stated ambitions is to deprivilege the civil service right now civil service independence is as it were a constitutional principle of the victorian state and the and the state that moves from the victorian period into the late imperial period and fights the second world war and so on and in and is part of as it were the keynesian model of the state you have a uh, an independent civil service that that executes or helps the executive in in the pursuit of its endeavors but which is in important ways independent uh, of the executive well thatcher smashes that model and sacks the head of the home civil service i think makes it very clear um, from the outset that she's not going to tolerate the kind of independence um, that had been a feature of the really existing state uh, since the mid-19th century now that was never in any um, manifestos, as far as I'm aware. That was never widely discussed. But it is an important constitutional change. Similarly, she she gets rid of local government uh, financial independence early on in her term, supposedly as a temporary measure. But she basically does something which, in a, uh, a formalized uh, constitution, would be just impossible. Right? You can't, you know, in Germany or, or in the United States, you can't just get rid of the um, the, the the existing powers and and um, protected sphere of subsidiary elements of the government uh, just because you pass a law 
right? The constitution forbids it. So we've been able to do things of, as it were, uh, of constitutional significance um, without ever having to, to, to acknowledge that formally. Um, and this is, I, I guess, also. I mean, it, the revolutionary character of the, the Thatcherite project, and the, and the amount of stuff that you can, that, you know, she was able to get done, and also what happens after 1945 with the, the incoming Labour government, you know, sort of seduces the left into thinking that it can just use the British Constitution to its to its own ends. And I think, you know, I wonder if perhaps in the case of 45 in particular, you know, that's a very unusual moment. It's, it's a situation in which Labour is is in government during the war, the character of the war and, and the necessities of, of, of total war require um, the development of a, of, a, uh, of a huge state intervention, which, which isn't the case in other periods of time. Yeah, I think that, that's a really important point. Uh, you know, if you, if you have that sort of narrow view, which I think the, the ancestral constitution encourages that whoever wins an election gets to, to do what they like, that tempts people, to, as you say, to, to sort of see control of parliament as this glittering prize. If we can just win an election, get get a, a sort of secure majority, we can we can do any number of quote good things. Um, what that misses, as you say, is that in 1945 you have a very very acute, painful memory of what happens in after the First World War, where you have again a huge amount of state mobilisation, and understanding that the resources of the state, which had been dismissed and and marginalized in the sort of edwardian thought world that the resources of the state could be used for any purposes that uh were seen as 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 being worthwhile so the same resources that were used to fight the war could be used to build homes fit for heroes right but they weren't right so they there was an experience of both seeing what the state could do and then seeing those those hopes that they were thereby created being dashed and actually you can in in programmatic terms i think you can draw a very very clear line from what people like tawny are talking about in the immediate aftermath of the first world war as a post-war program and what's actually enacted in 1945 now so there's there's as it were an intellectual preparation uh for for the new welfare state um but crucially and much more importantly the, the British working class are heavily armed in 1945, and they know how to fight, right? And this is this is this is this is smoothed over in all in most of the sort of popular accounts of what happens in 1945. Uh, I was, you know, I, I I was talking to someone who was explaining that 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 there had to be staggered demobilizations in certain parts of the world because the British army had effectively become run by soldier Soviets. Right, you would have large army bases which were being run by the the enlisted men and the NCOs, and the officers were being kept pretty much in under sort of administrative confinement. Right, you have kind of collectivization of the the war fighting machine um, in the later periods of the war. Now, I'm not saying that's that's a universal feature of British army, but what I am saying is that you have a you have a heavily armed um, population which knows how. It is how it had been, as it were, deprived of the benefits of peace a few decades before, and are determined for that not to happen again. Right. So, yeah, the. And like, it, I mean, it's the, also a period where where communism abroad has genuine appeal, right? I mean, the, the the Soviet Union's prestige is enormous at that moment. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and there is, yeah, there is a an overriding need in the British state to maintain civil peace there is there is no appetite and there is no practical way i think um for the british state to um set out to frustrate the fairly clear objectives of um of the uh 
yeah, British popular constituencies, if you like. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I think that's the difference, right? You have in 1979 a, um, a, a narrow electoral victory that gives the Conservatives uh, the leeway that they need to, to inaugurate, as it were, a, a constitutional refoundation in all but name, or a constitutional refoundation by stealth. In 1945, Labour is only really able to do that, or the only time it's been able to do it is when it has this vast and very radicalised popular constituency behind it. Now, there is a uh, that could leave us to pessimism to think that it's only possible to achieve even mild, relatively mild social democratic reform uh, in exceptional conditions. Um, but I think that's I think that's a council of despair. We do have. Um, an opportunity, whether Labour is in government or not, to prepare the ground a much more, much more thoroughgoing reckoning with the neoliberal order than might be possible if we simply rely on Corbyn and the people around him to, to secure a majority and then get on with, um, get on with the work. I don't think that's going to cut it. I think it's going to require a huge amount of of effort and thought outside Parliament, particularly if part of what we're seeking to do is to change the way in which representative democracy functions in a, in a broader democratic institutional order. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.